with so many riches in Jesus Christ. And Lord, you provide for our daily bread so far uh, uh, more than we ask for and more than we deserve. Uh, you provide that heavenly food that we need in Christ, that eternal life that we might live in him and for him every day. We ask, O oh Lord, that the salvation that we have received according to your power and your strength and your goodness, overcoming all the sinful forces and wickedness in this world, even the devil himself, that this salvation that you have um, secured for us would be made evident in our lives to the praise of your name, that many would see you and glorify you, that we would be encouraged in your work among your people, and that we would continue to walk in the, in, in the things that you have called us to. We pray this now as we come to the reading and preaching of your word. Lord, may it be uh, sound and healthy, um, fitting and true. May your spirit accompany it and be at work in all of our hearts and lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn our attention now to God's word in Titus, one of the pastoral epistles, Titus chapter 2. I'm going to be preaching this morning um, from verses 7, excuse me, verses 7 and 8. Here we continue um, Paul's list of instructions to this minister um, in which he gives uh, commands in the various things he is called to do as a pastor here on the island of Crete. Um, He he begins, um, which I'll begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read through uh, verse 8. He says uh, to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, here as Paul gives instructions to Titus, He now turns in verses 7 and 8 to give uh, Titus instructions for his own life. He has been, Paul has been telling Titus, here's how you would encourage these different groups within the church, but pay attention to yourself, he says. And he gives him uh, particular commands. This, of course, applies very directly to me, um, right, as a minister in Christ. I'm called to follow these words and to um, fulfill these uh, similar commands. 
And so reading a passage like this, right, hits me in different ways. On the one hand, I see a, a call to action, a command, a thing to be obeyed. On another hand, I feel like I'm reading my own condemnation, right, as I go through the list of the various things that I fail uh, to perfectly fulfill and sometimes fail in, in great ways, which is not good and inexcusable. It is also, as we read this list, an encouragement in the ways that we see these things produced in ourselves or in our church or even in our larger church bodies that we also see God at work, right? That there would be any success in any way in any person um, towards good works, um, dignity, sound speech, these kinds of things. It's all to the praise of, of God. And so we have a list here of, of good fruits as well, um, gracious fruits, godly fruits that the Lord is producing um, in, his, in his people and Titus here and Lord willing and many, many others. In thinking about that then, and we'll think more about points of application, I do want to spend a few times and just looking at these words. What is it that Paul commands here? In verses 7 and 8. The first thing he says is show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. A model of good works in all things, in all respects. That's very comprehensive, right? In public and in private, in speech and in writing, in thinking and in practice, um, in, the way, in family life, in church life. Um, all, in all of these things, Paul tells Titus that he is to be a model of good works. Um, to, so he's saying two things in saying model of good works. On the, one thing, he, on the one hand, he's saying that he is to be doing good works, right? You can't be a model of good works unless you're actually doing good works. He's called to do these good works, and in a, such a, and in a comprehensive way. The comprehensive way is not limited, of course, uh, to ministers. In Mark 12, verse 30, Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Every part of us is to be dedicated to our Lord, is to be dedicated to God. Sometimes we think that we can sort of dedicate this part but not that part. Well, if I study really hard and learn a lot of scripture but don't actually apply it and live it out, well, that's not all. That's not comprehensive. Or if we think, well, if I just do good works, I don't really have to pay attention to doctrine and things like that. Well, that's not all. And we could go down the list in a number of ways. We could say, well, if I have a really close feeling, an intimate relationship with the Lord, then it doesn't really what I do or what I think as long as we feel connected with one another, the Lord and I. Well, that's not really all. The Lord wants all of us in all of our parts. He's the one who made us after all, and he didn't just make some of us. He doesn't just have propriety or ruler authority over part of our bodies and part of our souls. He has authority over all of us, and he wants all of us, and he saves all of us. When we fell into sin, all of us, all parts of us, our minds, our, our emotions, our consciences, all came under the curse. All were bent toward wickedness and evil. And when the Lord sends his son into this world to die for our sins, he doesn't say, well, I'll just take care of his mind and we'll leave the rest to whatever. No, he says, I will care for all of him, all of her. 
so that we shall love the Lord our God with everything in us. The second part of that is, of course, not only in all things, this comprehensive nature of this, but God calls um, him to be a model of these things. The pastoral ministry is a public ministry, and all of our lives have a public aspect in some way or another. It's very, very rare, and maybe even never, that a person is entirely alone. All of us are connected in some way to people around us, and they see us. They see what we're doing. All of us, in some way or another, even from the very youngest um, uh, of children, um, we all have ways in which we are showing and doing, and people are watching and learning. That brings us to this second, or I want to add a little more to the second point then about modeling and being an example. This is a very prominent theme. Uh, in the scriptures, modeling and exampling, if that, I don't think that's a word, being an example, um, exemplifying there, uh, is one of the strongest forms of teaching, and it's one that God uses all the time. God himself is an example to us that we are to follow, and he uses other people in our lives in a similar way. Consider some scriptures with me. Uh, first, here's one about uh, Christ. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ sets for us an example. We read it in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Right? Christ is our example. He is to be followed. We are to know about him. We are to know him. We are to walk after him. Jesus himself says a similar thing to his disciples. Right? After washing their feet and getting down on his hands and knees and doing this uh, servant and even servant of servants work, in John 13, he says to his disciples, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You hear that? He says to his disciples as he's commissioning them, as he's preparing to send the Holy Spirit, and in which they would then go out into all of the world. He says, here is an example. I give to you an example. Do just as I have done to you. And by the Lord's grace, that's exactly what happens. The apostles go out into the world and do as the Lord did. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul understands that he's an example. And not just an accidental one or one that happens to be an example, but he's proactive about it. He tells the people in Corinth, he says, Be imitators of me. He lives his life in such a way that he says, you can follow me as I follow Christ, and that will be good for you. Paul then calls, as we continue sort of down this chain, Paul calls ordained men like Timothy and Titus then to be examples, right? So it's not just for Jesus, not just for the apostles, but for ordained men as well. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, 
in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And of course, we have here in Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, and then he talks about sound speech as well. This applies to church elders as well. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.3 that elders are not to be domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. This, of course, applies not only to to Jesus and to the apostles and to ordained men, but it applies uh, to all of us. And to all of us, we are examples. Even here in our passage, we hear how the older women are to be good teachers and to, to, to train the younger women on how to love their, children's, uh, their children and, and their husbands. And there are ways in which we, we set examples for each other around us and in our lives. Now, as a practical matter, let's consider just a few things. It's very difficult to set an example or be an example or learn from an example if you're not actually around other people. It's just a very simple kind of thing. And it takes an extended period of time, usually. Discipleship, Christian learning, mentoring, these kind of things, they, they take time. It takes time to know when somebody's action, how it fits into the context of their lives and their doctrine and their character. It takes time to, to know these things. Croc, uh, discipleship, I was going to say, discipleship in some ways is, is kind of more like a crock pot than a, than a, a you know, candy bar at the convenience store. Sometimes we want it that way. Sometimes we think we can get it that way. We say, oh, well, if I could just hear a pithy saying or if he would just tell me what to do, then I would know what to do. But how many times have you been told what to do and then you didn't do it? <laughs> Tons. Right? How many times did somebody tell you exactly the thing that you were supposed to do with your time, with your money, with your emotions, with your doctrine, and then you just didn't do it? <laughs> and then later you're like, why didn't I just do that thing? <laughs> now, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is that sanctification is often slow. <laughs> it steeps and it cooks and it sits and it simmers The way that we learn often happens that way. We spend time with people, and what at first we don't even notice, then all of a sudden becomes a prominent feature. We say, oh, I see what she's doing there. I see what he's doing there. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've, in trying to follow the example of learning from others, I've I've noticed some way I admire or respect say something, and I can't figure out why they did it. I can't put my finger on it, and I can't even figure out how to ask the question of them to ask them to explain it to me. It's just something's different about it, and I'm trying to figure out, figure it out. And in that moment, I feel a lot like the 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 the, the person in Proverbs who is rightly studying the riddles, right? Who is turning the proverbs over in his mind, trying to figure out what does this mean. What does this say? How does it apply? The book of Proverbs tells us that wisdom, in part learned through the examples of others, it it takes effort. It takes study. It takes rumination, meditation, and thinking. It takes time to mull over a situation or multiple situations and see patterns. 
see models and types and examples. The point I'm trying to underline here is that wisdom, sanctification, learning, mentoring, coaching, teaching, being an example and learning from examples takes time. If you are one who wants to grow and to learn from the example of others, you need to spend time with them. You need to be around them. That's one of the reasons, by the way, here at our church, we have various fellowship groups and service teams. The service teams, for example, you might think of them just as a a place to get something done, right? The water needs to be set out. The door needs to be opened. And it's a way I can help out. And that's true. But there's something else that's going on there intentionally and unintentionally, even if you happen to fall into it. And it's this kind of discipleship and mentoring when you're working alongside other people, when you're spending time and you get in conflicts and you you get into disagreements and you fail each other and you have to figure it out. How do we work this out together and how do we do it in the Lord? How do we do it in a way that pleases him? How do we do our work with excellence? And all these things, they're, they're ways for us to spend time with one another. And I want to encourage you to do that. From a teaching perspective, from a being a, a teacher perspective, uh, those of you who teach, those of you who are parents, who have any sort of responsibility to give someone else information, you also want it to be quick sometimes, Right? Why do I have to explain this? Why do I have to sit down? Why do I have to show this over and over? Can't I just give them the pamphlet or the verse or just let, and let them go? It just doesn't work like that. Being an example, being teaching takes relationships. It takes time. It takes trust. It takes love. It's a slower way to learn. It's very effective, and the Lord uses it. He uses it to humble us, to slow us down, uh, to help us to see things from different perspectives, and to see uh, his work in our lives. So I do want to encourage you in that, even as I want to encourage myself to be a model of good works and to seek the Lord in his help uh, to do that. Next, um, in, he comes and he says in a, in a specific way, Um, right, to be a model of good works in all respects and all things. And then he focuses down, drills down on teaching in particular. He says, in your teaching, show uh, integrity, dignity, and sound speech. To show integrity means he is not to be sly. The minister is not to be, you know, doing a kind of shell game theologically, Uh, moving and twisting and turning, never allowing you to really understand what he's saying, always being obscure and and sort of on on a kind of roundabout way. He is not to be sly and trying to um, sort of say one thing, although he he believes another. Integrity also means that the, the doctrine and the works match each other. Remember how this book is so much about seeing how these things connect. Good works proceed from good doctrine, and the central point of that doctrine being our good news, the good gospel of the Lord's salvation in our lives. A minister needs to understand that news and needs to understand it deeply and richly and personally. And there is an integrity, a matching then between the works that are on the outside and the, and the doctrine and the beliefs that are 
we might say, on the inside, a congruence, a correspondence between these things. There's integrity that must be there. Dignity as well, a second thing that he mentions in his teaching is to show dignity. Um, it's, he is to be serious about the word of God. He is to treat the word of God with reverence. And even though he may not necessarily live up to his office all the time, he is to treat his office uh, with respect, uh, the respect that it is due, even the reverence that it is due as something that, it is God, that God uses uh, for his people. This is one reason, for example, um, I never apologize for um, reading God's word. Um, I never say, well, this is, I know, kind of long, or this is a little difficult, and I know we, none of us want to hear this. I never say those kinds of things. I may ask you to sit if it's a little long. But I, I try very hard never to apologize for God's word, to never be embarrassed of God's word, um, even, even in places where I find it difficult or challenging to me. It's God's word, and it deserves to be treated with respect and with, with dignity. There are a lot of other ways in which we can consider um, the dignity that is due um, in teaching. It's dignity to the word. We could also consider the fact that those who are being taught um, also deserve um, to be treated with dignity. Dignity in the teaching, not just with regard to the content or the office, but with regard to those who are being taught. Right? God's, uh, the, the, uh, God's people and people in general, all of us, humankind, are made in the image of God. We all are in our different places and come with different backgrounds and trials and with different levels of understanding. A minister who runs rough, oh, a minister who runs roughshod over that, who ignores those things and doesn't pay attention, doesn't listen, doesn't try to understand and hear uh, the needs of those he's he's speaking to and trying to teach, is is not treating that person or those people with dignity. Respecting them is respecting the Lord. It's respecting that He can't control everyone. It's not his job to save people's souls or regenerate them. It's not his job to make them do good works or command, or well, not command, but to control, um, control them. That's, that's the Lord's job, in some sense their job. He shows them dignity in respecting those things, in teaching and, and being faithful in sound speech, as we'll get to in a moment but ultimately putting his faith in the Lord, in, his Lord to do his, in, in the Lord to do his work among his people. He is to treat others uh, with dignity. Um, he is to treat his doctrine with dignity. He is to treat the Lord and the word and the office with dignity. Finally, he says in his teaching is to show sound speech. It is to be whole and true and Sound, right? Sound um, sometimes means um, healthy, right? Um, healthy things are often um, orderly things, balanced things. They have all the right parts um, in all the right places and are functioning uh, properly. This is one of the reasons that we send, um, we send those who want to be pastors uh, to seminary to get um, 
intensive and extensive training in the word of God so that their speech might be sound, that their teaching might be sound. We don't want um, a ministry of the word of God which is really, really, really heavy and solid on one point but is really, really weak on another. Right? It, that kind of imbalance creates a problem on both sides. Maybe you've had this problem in your own body. If a, you hurt a hip, right, and so you're really leaning on your good leg, well, what, ha- what starts happening to your good leg, right? And what's working within your whole body? The whole thing starts not working well. To be sound and healthy and balanced, all of these things are very uh, important. He is to be a a student of the word then, careful, um, considering it, spending time in it, uh, growing in it. Now, why are these things necessary? He gives uh, gives a reason. He says in verse 8, so that, that that speech cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing to say about us. And just because a man is a good minister doesn't mean that he won't be attacked. Um, There are enemies of the church of Christ because there are enemies of Christ. And as we belong to him who is the head, we shouldn't expect any less than to suffer as he has suffered. There's nothing, um, there should be nothing surprising about that. There will be opponents to sound speech, opponents to the gospel. Enemies will attack. But we don't want them to attack and find that they had something worthy to attack. We want them uh, to be tilting at windmills. We want them to be on a fool's errand so that when they go to attack sound speech, they find it to be sound. (laughs) When they go to attack uh, the integrity of a man, they find him to have integrity. That That the opponents of Christ would be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. It's a reminder that there's a public nature in the work of ministers. It's not just a private affair. It's a public office. And, and when they are attacked, even personally, it has a public effect. And these are things which a, a good minister would seek to avoid, not by avoiding all enemies, but by being a man of integrity, by being a man with dignity, um, by being a man with sound speech, a model of good works in all things. A reason, and a very important reason underneath all of this, is that the ministry of Christ, which is ultimately what the minister is giving, is not evil. (laughs) The ministry of Christ is not an evil ministry, a a ministry of darkness, and, and, and it is a ministry of life and light and righteousness. So the one who is a minister of Christ must be delivering those things. Christ's ministry is not one of evil, it is one that delivers us from evil. So those who are his representatives, either official and ordained or unofficial, simply bearing the name Christian, little Christ, as representatives of Christ, we don't want his name to be maligned. We don't want our Lord and Savior to be thought of poorly because of us. When we think about the gospel of God, the washing, the regeneration, the purifying love of God that he gives to us in the Spirit and the Son, 
when we think about the life of good works that we are called to, not because God is waiting for us to earn our life, but because he has called us into this life and empowered us and given us his spirit for us. Because of these things, we ought to be not like that evil man in the parable of Jesus who was, uh, who was forgiven so much and then went to somebody who owed him very little and just harangued him and was angry at him and demanded the money. Instead, we ought to be like the one that that man should have been, right? The one who says, I have been forgiven so much. The Lord has been so welcoming me to me, hospitable to me, loving to me, that that then um, is manifested in our lives. Good works and the law becomes honey on our lips. Why? Because we've been saved. Because it no longer condemns us and says that you are going to hell. But instead now it only directs us in the life into which we have been saved. And it points us more and more to Christ in whose salvation we live. Brothers and sisters, we have been baptized into the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that we might praise him and live for him. We have been delivered from evil, not so that we would do evil, but so that we would be free from it. When we think about the gospel of God, we can say with the Westminster Confession of Faith that the gospel doesn't loosen, or, or sorry, lessen the demands for good works, but it in fact increases it. It increases it. Not as a means for our justification, because our justification is only in Christ. But it increases it as this is the life into which we are called. We have been set free, not to go back into the cage and get all twisted up on ourselves again, but to live our lives in holiness and righteousness and in happiness, glorifying God and enjoying him forever according to his will. As we think about our Savior and we think about the salvation he brings, we, don't find our, we should not find ourselves being proud and self-serving in our good works. We must always guard against the temptation of the evil one toward these things. But neither must we be embarrassed about good works or God forbid, think we shouldn't do them. We must do them. We are called to them. And Jesus tells us, don't be embarrassed about them, like putting a light under a basket. But he says, no, and let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Your good works, interesting what phrase. And give glory to God or give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why is it that someone would see your good works and give glory to God in heaven? Why is it that, how is it that someone could see the good things that you yourself are doing and yet give glory to God the Father? Because it's the Father in the Son and by the Spirit who is working in you, who is bringing these forth in you. They are the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the righteousness, righteousness the fruit of of your salvation. 
If God blesses you with a bunch of fruit, that's not something to be ashamed about or to be embarrassed by or to deny. We also don't want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. If we see God producing good fruit in our lives, we give him praise for it and we work harder and we strive to produce more as he gives us his grace. In the end, it's all about God, all about his work, all about his power, all about his graciousness. We have nothing apart from him, no good apart from him. But in him, we do actually have these things. In him, we do do good works. Not perfect works, but works that God is using and blessing and growing us in. And one day, he will glorify us in in such a way and will be in such a state that we will do nothing but good works all the time and in every way perfectly according to his will and the power of his promise and according to his glory. All this to say that as I consider a passage like this and as you consider a passage like this which calls us all to be good, good workers or doing good works, to live lives of integrity, to be thinking and acting in right ways that are honoring and glorifying to God. The key thing that we have to remember is that what we need more than anything is more of Christ. That, because that's how these things are produced in us. From the perspective of a minister, and I think for all of us, but I'll speak about the ministry since that's the focus of the passage. I do want to say that a minister's relationship, and I say this to myself, in faith and in repentance, can't be at the edges of his ministry. It can't be something that I or any other is sort of squeezing in as there is opportunity and time while he is busy about you know, the work of ministry or whatever that is. The centrality of Christ must be the force, the energy, the life behind the ministry, which means that if I find myself sort of scurrying around and being overly busy and not thinking about the Lord, not being in prayer, not spending time uh, with him, I know that something's wrong. <laughs> and my hips busted, and things are gonna go really bad really soon. It's important that I pay attention to that, and I think it's important that we all pay attention to that, because the Lord isn't just at the center of the life for ministers, is he? He should be at the center of all of our lives. For me, that means making sure that I never think about our worship service as a performance as a script to get through, as a, as a thing which is to be sort of done in a particular way. We're, what we do here is worship. It's not a performance. It's not an act. It's worship before the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Keeping Christ at the center sometimes means saying yes to things outside of what I feel like I can control and manage, and trusting him to help me. Sometimes it means saying no 
to good opportunities like Jesus did to get alone and be quiet and pray. Spending time meditating and learning God's word, spending time with him, knowing him, uh, praying to him, asking all over and over and over again about our own faith and, and repentance and seeking to have him more at the center. This is a, the Christian life. When we see ourselves falling short, when I see myself falling short, when I hear these commands and think, oh, there's so much more I want to do, there's so much more I can do, there's ways in which I've failed, how am I supposed to respond to that? How are you supposed to respond in your own lives or even in reaction to your, your pastor? We have to respond to that with faith and repentance. We have to respond to that by going again to our Lord and Savior and looking to him, to his promises, and to his salvation. That is at the center of Christian ministry. That is at the center, must be at the center of Christian life. This is how good works are produced in us. This is how God is glorified. This is how opponents are put to shame. And this is how the, uh, the, sheep, uh, the sheep of the Lord are brought into the fold. May God have all the glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess before you the ways in which we fall short, fall short of, um, of the life that you have called us into. We ask, Lord, that you would not let us go as you have promised to do, that you would keep us in your hands and that you would persevere us even to the very end, that one day we might experience the, the, the perfection of complete holiness, that sin might no longer be um, dogging us and, 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 and deceiving us um, that we, and, and affecting us, but that we would um, be fully and always in you. Lord, we ask that you would help us not to pursue good works as a show, as a performance, as an idol, but let us pursue them in the same way that we received the, our life through faith. Let us look to you and all things. As we, as we come to understand you more and more, we ask that you would give us sound minds so that we might speak well, confess well, praise well, pray well, that we might witness to others and disciple others and train and be examples and all of these things out of a deep and growing knowledge of who you are. And as we look on our lives, Lord, and we consider the ways in which you have been moving among us, have been growing on us, we see blind spots that are no longer blind but filled uh, in which there is vision as we see sins which once haunted us are now um, and now no longer enslaving us, as we see um, the fruits of righteousness and holiness being produced in us, oh Lord, let us rejoice and glorify you because these things can be produced by none other than you and you alone. Lord, we ask that as we glorify you, we would also enjoy you. Teach us to enjoy the goodness of your grace in our lives and in the lives of others. We ask that you would help all of us in the various ways in which we have opportunity to be good examples, people of integrity, 
um, a model of good works that others might learn of you through us and that you might be glorified in it. And Lord, where we have opportunities to grow and to learn and to see, uh, to see your working in other people, help us to be good students, wise students, searching students. Help us to seek after the wisdom of godliness and the fear of the Lord more than we look for gold or silver or anything else in this life. Help us to seek the wisdom and holiness of life in the Lord um, with energy and, and vigor and zeal all through Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.